Hello everyone, this is Thomas Buher, pastor of Heritage Reformed Presbyterian Church. I'm here with uh, the elders of our church tonight at Chick-fil-A in Sanford. And we're going to be looking at Romans, Romans chapter 3. Um, we did not record last time uh, where Tim and Tom, Brandon and James finished up Romans chapter 2. Uh, but that's all right. Um, we'll jump back in it with Romans chapter three now, and uh, just kind of going off the cuff here. No real premeditated uh, discussions or anything. Some are still eating, so we'll just kind of go. A big crowd just kind of came in here, so it's gonna be a little noisy. Uh, but I'll begin reading Romans three at verse one. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them, that is to the Jewish people, were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Would their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? <clears throat> are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So we'll stop there. Um, so it does open with um, <clears throat> the continuing discussion on circumcision, which kind of requires us to look back at the end of chapter 2, uh, where it says it's profitable if you keep the law, in verse 25. But of course, no one does perfectly, righteously keep the law. And so, Paul at the end of chapter 2, verse 28, says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he's a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So at the end of chapter 2, they're really... Physical circumcision is, as far as what Paul is saying, um, kind of all negative, I guess. Uh, there's not a lot of positive to be said about it. Uh, so you may conclude that the sign 
the sign of circumcision, the covenant of circumcision, was utterly um, meaningless or unprofitable, that because you cannot keep the law and it's a sign of circumcision and related to the giving of the law, which came later with Moses, of course, even though the sign was given originally to Abraham, you may think that, well, really, because it's all about uh, the heart, the spirit, heart circumcision, therefore the sign, the seal, um, is or was uh, meaningless, right? That's how chapter 3 opens. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet, what good is circumcision? <clears throat> and of course, he is talking about the sign of circumcision here. He's not talking about heart circumcision, um, although the two are obviously just like with baptism, when you're speaking about one, the other is connected to it. So, um, what is the advantage? Well, the advantage is that they were given the oracles of God. So part of circumcision was the sign of being part of the people of God, and what belonged to them were the oracles of God, the, uh, the word of God, the instructions, the temple and tabernacle system, and all that taught them and pointed well, ultimately to Christ who would atone for sin, <clears throat> and so on and so forth. But verse 3 of chapter 3, what if some did not believe? Uh, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Uh, God was faithful to his people, which was signified in circumcision. Even when they were unfaithful, God preserves um, his people, his remnant, etc., etc. Um, and really, Paul's going to get into a long discussion on this, going through the next several chapters at least. Um, Abraham in chapter 4, how he was justified before circumcision, but we're not there yet, so I don't want to jump into that yet. But I've talked for six minutes, so you guys jump in. Well, I think that... He says, much in every way, chiefly, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. He's um, he's underscoring what we've underscored in our Sunday school when we're going through the Psalms, how that uh, Israel is a chosen people, a peculiar people. Uh, in fact, the only people. Uh, that are the true worshipers of the true and living God, where, whereas the other nations surrounding them, they were without these oracles, they were without uh, all the uh, commandments of God. And, you know, the scriptures make a point that uh, because Israel did have the commandments of God, that uh, they were the most instructed, most wise, uh, most peculiar, unusual, uh, unique people on the face of the earth. None of the other nations had that. And so because of that, they were, in the history of Revelation, they were being brought along uh, in line with God's purposes to save a people for himself. And part of that, of course, was having a peculiar people to worship him and uh, live by the oracles of God. 
I was going to say that though we haven't quite stepped into it in the next verses or so, it, you begin to get Paul's arguing, making an argument in the same fashion that he does in Romans 9, where uh, he says, um, um, well, in verse 5 he says, but if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness, I, well, should we go on? I've read all the way down through, so yeah. Okay, so you don't mind going going to that, okay. So verse 5 says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And it echoes the argument that he was making in Romans 9, where in Romans 9 you have the individual who says, How can God... Uh, find us guilty if he is the one that has determined who will be vessels of mercy and who will be vessels of wrath. And I believe that uh, both there and here uh, Paul's argument is based on what he cites in the previous verse, verse 4, <clears throat> where he says, well, he says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. He's beginning to make his argument. Basically this, that it does not matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you say. It is the one, God is the one who is true. You can't argue against him, even though you think there are reasons, logical reasons, uh, to blame God or to accuse God of doing something wrong in the matter of his elective, electing purposes. But he cites this. He says, Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. That's the rationale that Paul's basically using here and also in Romans 9. That God is the one who should be, it must be justified in what he says and what he judges. And you can't counter that. You can't go against that. Even though in your own little puny mind you think God is being unfair. Whether you think it's unfair or not, whether you can come up with a hundred logical reasons why God is being unfair, they don't stand because God is justified in his words. He will not be overcome in his judgments, and he, he himself overcomes. So basically Paul is saying here and there that you cannot mount an argument against God. Whether you understand it or not, God is supreme, he is sovereign, and he does what as he wills. He shows mercy to whom he will show mercy, wrath, wrath, and here. He says, um, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? It's the same question. But especially in regards to his own covenant people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, the sort of the, um, is it unrighteous that God would do this when these are his people? Is, is it, un are you saying? That's the question that he's posing. Is, is it un, but is it unrighteous for God to inflict wrath upon whom? His own people. That's, that's what's 
in view here, right? Because he's talking about the advantage of the Jews, but then he's talking about their unbelief. Will that make the faithfulness of God without effect? Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I think he is probably focusing more on uh, the Jew here, but he's taking care of them. The argument against them here. Later, he brings up the argument against everybody well, yes, in the whole world. Yes, um, the following verses goes yeah. into the Jew and the Gentile all. Yeah. But he uses yeah. the same rationale for each one. In, in a sense, Paul could have brought in, and perhaps he does, and I'm not. I'm missing it. Uh, at some point, that they are under greater judgment because they've had the orders of God. Yeah. Well, yeah, and Romans nine is also about the. The Jews and the Gentiles. I mean, it's the same thing running through. Um, <clears throat> and in back in Romans 2, verse 17, Indeed, you who, you are called a Jew and rest in the law and make your boast of God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. They are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light of those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth and law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you, do you not teach yourself? Um, you preach that a man should not steal. Do you still steal? Um, the name, and he skips down, you know, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then that's when he goes into how circumcision is only profitable if you keep the whole law. So in one sense, it's unprofitable. But in another sense, it's profitable, profitable because they do have the oracles of God. They did have the promises. And, yeah, yeah. if you want to... Good. Well, yeah, I think we kind of talked about this last time. How he kind of the way he's setting up his argument is he's you know, he's dealt he's dealing with the Jew and the Gentile specifically to demonstrate that basically all uh, apart from faith in Christ right. are condemned. Right. Uh, that that all are justified whether you're Jew or Gentile only by faith yeah. um, in Christ. Right. So, so I do think he's. You know, he's, he's dealing specifically with the Jews, especially, especially coming off of that previous argument, you know, um, the, you know, especially the Jew that might, you know, the self-righteous Jew that might think that simply by being a Jew, he bears the mark of circumcision. Um, that in itself means that he's good to go. Uh, right. but, but he demonstrates um, through this argument why that's not so, and he's, you know, come down to, um, you know, 19 now. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Uh, for through the, law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right. Uh, I think he's, it means to, sh- you know, shut everybody yeah. Up under the law. Yep, yep. <clears throat> and back in um, Romans two fifteen, well fourteen fifteen, it, you know the law is written in the heart of everyone, including yeah. the Gentile. Yeah. Every, it's always been well, it's always been the law, and it's always been faith in Christ. Ultimately, I mean, it, 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 in the broad sense, everyone has always had the law in some form, written on their heart, if nothing else, creation declaring it. But the Jews had a tremendous advantage because they had it codified uh, with Moses and even prior to Moses God speaking to 
well, Abraham and down through the line. They, they had privileges in that regard, covenant privileges. And that's why he says there's a prophet in circumcision, much in every way. Um, and of course, we would want to apply that today as well to anybody who's in the household of faith. Um, what prophet is there in baptism, water baptism, much in every way? Um, if you're baptized into Christ, and that certainly includes water baptism, that's a baptism into the church and into, even though it's a reality prior to that, it's a formal um, recognition of that. Um, it's a, a, a official acknowledging of these things and that you belong to Christ and the church and the oracles of God, the word of God. Um, and so whether it's an adult coming in through baptism, faith, you know, faith repentance of baptism, or a child of the covenant, you know, believer's children, um, to be in the church, to be counted among God's people, to have the word of God through the church of God is an advantage, even when there's unbelief there. Um, but yes, what, what the heart of the matter, the root of the matter is circumcision of the heart and baptism of the heart. If you don't have that, um, then you will be cast away. You will be damned. You will be judged. Um, yeah, and so then the re you know verses nine through eighteen there is really just this <clears throat> list of we've all turned aside. It's from the Psalms, right? Um, <clears throat> yeah, Psalm fourteen and elsewhere there. Um, Jews and Gentiles all are unrighteous. No, nobody seeks after God. They've all turned aside. Um, in verse 19, it says that, so that those who are under the law... Oh, sorry, let me just read it. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So the whole world is under the law of God in some sense. Christ is also the Savior of the world, meaning... He's the only name in which one can be saved from the curse of the law, the law breaking. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Maybe we should hang out on that for a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so many people, oh man, so many think that the law um, is almost, I don't want to say bad, but salvation is salvation away from the law. You know, such that um, we're not being saved from the penalty of the law, from the curse of the law, which is damnation for breaking it. We're not being saved from the consequences of law breaking, but we're being saved from the law in a more like strict sense of law keeping in every way, shape, or form. That, you know, we're not really saved unto good works to obey God's commands, but we're saved from having to really, in any sense, even bother with that. Which is not true. Um, the law does not justify because we've broken the law. We're saved from the curse of the law. We're delivered from that. Um, through the law, we have the knowledge of sin. Um, but also in Christ, through the law, we have the knowledge of how to serve and please the Lord. Um, which Paul will get into later on, of course. But... Um, we, we, we have to always remember that being saved from the law does not mean being saved from obedience. Yeah. Uh, 
you guys got anything on that? Yeah, I think um, I don't know if that kind of thinking, you know, logical sequence of thinking, is what made Charles Ryrie come up with the idea that um, you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but you don't have to accept Him right. as your Lord. Probably so. Yeah. And under dispensationalism, I can see that because they break up such, the yeah, dispensations. Yes, yes, there's such we're not a under that dichotomy yeah. between Israel and the Church. Yeah, yeah. Well, the hardcore dispensationalist will even say that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, like the Beatitudes and such, yeah. are like a previous era, right? Yeah. Well, no, well, yeah. I remember in college, which was dispensational, all that was kingdom. Yeah. Uh, also, it's future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's not but, something we've entered into. But even though it was kingdom theology, there are practical things in it that you could use for now. Is what they would say. Yeah. 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 Right. But you, there's no way that you would be the, you know, the blessed man that Jesus is speaking of here on earth. Right. 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 right, right. That you can't achieve. Right. <clears throat> right. Yeah. And so. Did you have anything else on that? Um, so continue. Good, yeah. Continuing in Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There's another thing I think we need to address right there. It's, it's, it's not... It's telling you right there that the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. In verse 22, we'll say, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ... But it also says it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. So it wasn't as if it was completely yeah, it wasn't absent. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was present, right? Through the whole, through the law itself. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's, that's what it says: yeah. being witnessed by the law um, and the prophets. Uh, so when it says that it's now revealed, um, it's revealed in its fullest expression now that Christ has come in the flesh but it was revealed also in the Old Testament in the Old Covenant um, even if it was more by um, negation you know in the sense that no one will be justified through this therefore animal sacrifices spotless lamb pointing to the future need of a man who is that spotless one Jesus um which isn't a merely negative thing either. It, right. The Day of Atonement, I mean, that was at the center of the religion for the Jewish people. <clears throat> it was the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Uh, the high priest, once a year, goes into the Holy of Holies. This is the core of Jewish worship. You know, blood atonement through a spotless lamb for the people. To atone for sin on the Ark of the Covenant, where the broken commandments were because we've broken it the spirit of god is there etc etc um now we can understand that better now because we have the new testament and we have a further explanation of it than they had but that too should have been communicated and should have gotten through to the the, the jewish people um but yes we now have the righteousness of god is now revealed more perfectly and fully through christ faith in Christ to all and on all who believe for there is no difference verse 23 for all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. There's nothing inherently superior about Jew or Gentile. It's, it's all of sinners all need Christ as Savior. Um, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or in other words, he is just insofar as he is not letting sinners go free without a payment for sin. He is just in that there is a punishment for sin. Christ is our punishment in our place. And through him also, therefore, he's the justifier. He, may, he declares us to be righteous through Christ's righteousness because we have faith in Christ and receive him for all that he is for us as the propitiation, that payment for sin received by faith. And it says there through faith. It's not um, faith doesn't add to the atonement. It's received by faith. Um, and therefore, he can go on in verse 27 to say, therefore, there's no boasting, it's not by law, it's not by works, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised, of the Jewish people who have the sign of circumcision, by faith. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And we kind of already touched on that law is still established, and it's going to get in Abraham in chapter 4, but you guys got anything to add? <laughs> um, say, as, a, as a Christian, at least me personally, I think you know, uh, 24 through 26 are three probably three verses that I've drawn some of the most comfort uh, yeah. from in scripture uh, especially you know this idea that, that God put Christ forward as a propitiatory sacrifice as a propitiation for our sins um, that he is both just and the justifier of those who, who, who have faith in Christ um, you know especially for, for a Christian who might have a sensitive conscience conscience like, like I do you know you um, and there's a good, good and righteous desire to, to make things right with people we've heard or whatever the case may be. There's this desire in the heart to do something to make our sins right. Um, but, but, you know, we live in a world where that's not always possible. You're not always going to um, be able to connect with someone that you sinned against in the past. or um, And even if you, you were able... Uh, that in, in and of itself, um, that you know, retribution, that uh, that recompense, or whatever you want to call it, even that in and of itself is not enough to justify you in the sight of God. Right. Um, right. But so, as a Christian, you know, the fact that, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, God's wrath against our sin has been satisfied, and, and God has dealt with our sin justly. Justice. Right against our our sin has been executed perfectly and sufficiently um, and, and for me personally you know um, you know coming from the lifestyle that, that I, I lived there was a lot of people I heard and I you know I tried to go back to as many as I possibly could to, to 
make amends or whatever you want to call it. Sometimes right. it was reciprocated, sometimes it wasn't. Right. right. Uh, and those that I wasn't, you know, able to receive some sort of uh, acknowledgement, like, you know, yeah, I forgive you or, or whatever the case may be, that would that would eat me up, tear me up. Um, and it was through texts like this that, that I was finally able to, uh, I guess, move on, you know, yeah. to find peace in the fact that, yeah, I wasn't able to, to uh, receive some positive word of forgiveness for yeah. somebody I hurt. Yeah. But but justice was served. Right. Yeah. Right. Christ is the propitiation. Yeah. He is. Yeah. Uh, and and that. Yeah. All right. right. So that's that's that is verse twenty five. God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, mm-hmm. which is a powerful way of yeah. putting it. And and that's the. You know the, the the scandal, the mystery of it is. You know we do understand, like it's doctrinally, it makes logical sense. Once and to one extent, to some extent, that you know when you know obviously, thankfully, I've never been uh, a victim of a murder. You know, someone in my family been murdered, and then the criminal is put to death. But. There is a sense of that bloodshed giving some kind, some degree, some approximation of justice, wrath being satisfied. You know, this person has to pay for what they've done with their blood. And, you know, I saw this disgusting, um, I'm not going to go into details of it, but just disgusting, you know, one of these drag queen things and the kid touching a fake part of this person and just filth. And I saw, uh, it was actually Charlie Kirk on Twitter saying something like, um, this is why we are glad to have the death penalty. You know, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And absolutely right. Like, just seeing that, like, you want this person, and it's righteous, to, to die yeah. for what they are doing to children, for what they are doing. Um, that, 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 and our justice system is so messed up that they can just do it openly when they should be executed for these sorts of things. But then we look at our own sin, and we all deserve eternal damnation before our holy, righteous, good, all-glorious God who deserves every drop of our obedience, of our allegiance, of our worship, and, and root apart from Christ, we'd never give him that. And even in Christ, we never give him that perfectly, this side of glory. But it's through the blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. His blood perfectly satisfies God's wrath. I mean, God's wrath had to be satisfied for our sin. Because he looked at us, outside and apart from Christ, as like that drag queen person, but, you know, exponentially worse. And they must suffer eternally. But then Jesus steps in, takes our punishment, and it's not some... You know, a human analogy fails there because, like, who would do that? You know, what? but the good purpose of that, that the Son is glorified in that. He redeems his people out of their deadness and sins so that we honor and glorify him. He still judges the wicked whom he did not atone for. Um, so there is still an eternal just expression of his righteous wrath on the actual one who sinned and not merely mercy. It's both, which Romans 9 also gets into that a lot. Um... So yeah, he's just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, and it's not according to our works. Um, and imagine, I mean, 
think about how unjust that would be if it was Bioworks, because we're so wicked. Like, what what kind of goodness would it be if, even if it was just sort of the Arminian view of the determining factor is faith? Because that's still a good work at that point, if you have to conjure it up, create it in your own heart. There's no justice in that. There's no justness. There's no justification for that, because we're so wicked and wretched. It, it, we wretched sinners would either by our works or by casting this determining righteous act of faith somehow um, you know like I've heard that Max Lucado quote like Jesus on the cross with the two thieves on each side of him that was the ultimate uh, example of God's like, goodness and justice that they could pick him one did one did it what, what a bunch of hooey you know uh, to think that, like, ah, you know, the the man, the, the one robber, he, he pulled it off in the nick of time of all of his crimes and robbing and, you know. Uh, no, it's it's not of works. It's it's the law of faith, but faith itself is a gift of God, as Ephesians 2 tells us. Um, but you're right. I mean, the blood of Christ, you know, takes away all our sin. And it's not just that we're forgiven, but it's it's propitiated and it's expiated. It's it's, it's removed. It's we're washed clean. Um, and it is hard to fathom because we still sin as Christians. How can this guilty sinner that I am, with this sinful nature, this wretched man that I am, as Paul says in Romans seven, his body of death, how can this be washed away? Oh, well, can wash away? It says nothing but the blood of Jesus, as the hymn says, and. Um, Right, and I think this passage in you know Galatians also was very powerful for Luther, Martin Luther, because he thought it had to be his righteousness, but no, it's the righteousness of Christ. Yeah. Um, the uh, verse twenty-three, uh, Paul writes, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." Typically, that's taken to refer to all people without discrimination, and I think you can extend it that way, but in the very immediate context, he's talking about all who believe in Christ in the previous verse, uh, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, but there's no difference. Uh, of course, what he's saying there, no difference between Jew and Gentile. All who believe will receive the righteousness of God. And then he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the immediate context, that all would have to be constricted to mean those Jews and Gentiles who believe. Although, what is true of them is true of everyone. They, they all sin. But the the one who would hold to uh, unlimited atonement would might come to this verse and use it in defense of that position uh, and he might go to the next part right, right after that where he says whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith and the, what the argument it might be something like this that God is setting forth Christ uh, as a propitiation 
Well, for whom? He's not distinguishing. It's for anybody and for everybody, which means that Christ died for everybody. Well, he, he, he's right on the, ones, on the one hand that Christ is being set forth as a propitiation for the sins of anybody and everybody who believes. So in that sense, it's for everybody. Understanding that it is through faith that it is appropriated. Um, so the the idea of being set forth means is being Christ is being shown or demonstrated or put out there in front of all so that they can see Him <laughs> as the only one through whom salvation can come by His shed blood, and on the basis of that they will either trust in him or not trust in him. And, 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 and underlying that is the promise that you who believe, you put your faith and trust in Christ for your salvation through his blood will receive uh, salvation. And I, I said this a couple times that I remember in, in Sunday school when I was going through the five points of Calvinism and on this one point, point in particular of unlimited, uh, excuse me, limited atonement, there were some who were rather upset about that because um, on the one hand, one would get upset, well, you mean my friend Christ may not have died for them? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, one would say, well, how, how can we know? Mm -hmm. You know, you never, you can't know for sure. Well, again, you go back to the promise here, Christ is set forth as a propitiation for the sins of all who believe. So if you believe the promise is this, if you trust in Christ to save you from your sins through his shed blood, you can be sure that he died for you, that that blood will avail for you. And you can take it one step back, you can be sure because of that, you can be sure that you were chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to doubt that or to misunderstand that. Right. <clears throat> but, and some of that goes into the you know, well-meant offer, the free offer of the gospel. You know, on what basis can you um, offer, you know, <coughs> salvation in Christ to anyone indiscriminately? Um, and I think there's, you know, there, there's, there's probably a little bit more variance on the atonement among Reformed people than we realize sometimes um, exactly how it's sliced up. Um, but I think regardless, even if you hold, as I would, that, you know, he only propitiated, he only atoned, he only actually was a sacrifice for the elect um, in any true meaningful sense as far as saving them out of their sins and covering them uh, salvifically and eternally. Um, as you're saying, because... The call is repent and believe. The command uh, is that when, when we're when we're actually telling others to repent and believe in Jesus, we're not really making any. I don't think we really need to be making any determination about whether or not he has atoned for you. The question is: Here is the Lamb that was slain. His sacrifice is of infinite worth and value. Whether he's going to redeem you or not, you're commanded to repent and believe. Yeah. You're called to that. It's not an off, nearly an offer. 
it's a summons, a command, a duty. Um, and as you said, any and all who do repent and believe shall be saved. That's the promise. Yeah. And so we would say that he died in such a way that any and all who repent and believe shall be saved. Right? So you, you can affirm that and also affirm limited atonement. And they're not contradictory. No. You can you know, you can you can affirm that this is the command, this is the obligation, this is what all will be judged for for or doing or not doing, repenting and believing in Christ. Um, and that if you do so, you shall be saved. And so the terms, if you will, of the new covenant are given in those in, in that sense. And so in that sense, I think you can say that Christ is um, offered to all. Christ is held out to all as a propitiation for sin, but not necessarily a propitiation for your sins, per se. You know, it, it's, he is the propitiation. If you repent and believe, that propitiation will become yours. Um, it, or, or it will be realized within you, yeah. probably a better way to say it. Um, uh, applied. Accomplished, yeah. What was accomplished would be applied to you. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like John Murray puts it. Um, that propitiation is held out to all and will be applied to you. And you can say, I think, in a sense, it's accomplished... Um, <coughs> for the whole world, but not every last person in the world, obviously. So, you know, those are some of the weeds of the distinctions there. And, you know, I was reading that some of the minority, but Westminster divines and the assembly had a like hypothetical universalism view, um, which I don't even remember all the distinctions of that, but it's different. Um, but the main position is limited atonement, as we understand it, is Christ died for propitiated for the elect only you know he didn't suffer God's wrath for those who are in hell still suffering God's wrath that doesn't make sense uh, what are they suffering for if God's yeah, wrath has been satisfied yeah <clears throat> and that's you know they call it double jeopardy it, it, that to me is the most persuasive argument of it all, because you, you, you can certainly find certain passages or verses that can be interpreted easy enough in certain ways that would be a universalistic thing. You know, but First John, um, he's not he's a propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also the whole world. Like that was one of the hardest passages initially for me. It's like, well, it says the whole world, not ours only. You know, and there's several ways to view that which I don't think we need to go into right now. Um, but the, the, the logic of it would have to then be, if that means every last person in the whole world, then isn't there injustice with God because not every last person in the whole world is in glory, is in heaven, is redeemed. He failed. Like, propitiate, by definition, is not failing. It's actually removing and atoning and satisfying God's wrath. And so if he did that for every last single person in the whole wide world, then we should all be like, you know, whatever, Rob Bell or somebody, and, well, everybody's going to go to heaven. You know, be universalist in that sense. Um, the, uh, that verse in 1 John 2-2. I think it's, yeah, I think so. It's propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The um, King James Version original one. I don't know whether the New King James Version does it. Will, will translate something like he, 
and his propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also, and then in italicized, we say, for the sins of the whole world. Mm. Meaning that what was intended for us, our sins personally, was also intended for the world. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. And there are theologians, especially those who would hold to unlimited atonement, uh, who would say, well, it's understood. The sins of the whole world should be understood there. <clears throat> but the fact that John didn't write it that way, I think, is yeah. important. Yeah. Um, because there's a difference between being the propitiation for the sins of specifically certain people and then being the propitiation in general for the world as a whole. I think there's a difference there. Yeah. <coughs> and, and what that difference is like, would have to be defined more by other places in the scripture because I don't think it brings that out specifically there. But you know there's a difference. Yeah. And you know, the <clears throat> some have gone to John 11. Um, Caiaphas, being high priest, says, You know nothing, this is verses 49 and following in John 11, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it, is, that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And so some have taken it in that sense, too, where it's like, you know, our sins only, but the whole world, every other nation, every other, not every last person, but every nation. Um, which, you know, there's different ways to understand that, but... Um, I don't know how people understand propitiation who believe that Christ propitiated for every single person in the whole wide world. It's the meaning of the word <laughs> uh, is a satisfaction. A sa you know, you'd have to say he was a failed propitiation for some, which is inconceivable. But the contradiction. It is right, right, it, right. It, it would it would be an aborted, a failed propitiation. Well, if it's a propitiation, it doesn't fail. <clears throat> It, it, it would be an attempted one, it, but a failed, like a failed suicide or well, something. It would be, you know, it, it would be a failed, it would be a propitiation that didn't actually propitiate. It would be a right. failed, yeah. Right, right, which, he, which he, would make it, like not a saying. true propitiation, yeah. right, right. But, you know, my point is, yeah. you could offer up a lamb with blemish. You could, you know, that's what you'd have to resort to, saying that Jesus was blemished or failed mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form. It was a, a faulty <coughs> sacrifice. It was a faulty offering. Um, which in one sense is an offering, but a failed one, is, is what I'm trying to you know, say, is, yeah. you know, it was the strange well, the success fire. success the atonement is dependent upon whether or not we yeah. choose to believe, and that's right. the ignorant, you know, yeah. it's the folly of the Arminian position. Right, and but th this is where actually understanding something of the Old Testament animal sacrifice is very important. Where did faith actualize these, the sacrifice? You know, where in the Old Testament did um, was faith sprinkled on the altar or whatever? You know, to make it meaningful. Oh, you might say, well, the high priest offered it up, and he had to do it in good faith. Yeah, but Christ is the high priest, and and the sacrifice. Uh, you know, the man has no part in that. Um, there, there, there is no. 
you in this salvation, like you accomplishing this. Even the high priest going into the Holy of Holies is a picture of Jesus, right? The blood he sprinkles is Jesus' blood, sprinkled by Jesus himself. Oh, lo and behold, what does it say in the Old Testament? I will sprinkle the nations. That's why we baptize by sprinkling. It's the blood of Christ being sprinkled. The blood of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament was sprinkled on the people. And the people who did it, it wasn't the people sprinkling themselves. They weren't taking the blood of the sacrifice and dabbing themselves with it or something like that. You know, and, and, and it's not like some Roman Catholic priestcraft, right? Moses, the high priest, they were all representing Christ. Moses was over the house. Now Christ is over the house of Israel as a son. Um, there is no place in the work of atonement and propitiation for man. Like not not even not even faith. Yes, it's true. I suppose you could say that um, at times the people are there saying, "Yes, we will do this. Yes, we believe this." But but all of them got the sprinkling of the blood upon them. Not all of them believe, though. Yeah. <laughs> so the faith or the lack of the faith didn't change the fact that the blood was on them. Uh, I think that's why in Hebrews also it can talk about you know trampling the, the, the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified and all these things. It was like Hebrews 10, right? I mean, it, it, and in that sense, you know, if you want to say that he was the propitiation for everyone, you know, there, there's something about the blood of Christ that does cover anybody who comes under it, but not all of them is unto salvation, a propitiation of their sins. Um, and it was... You know, it wasn't like the ones who had the blood on them but didn't really believe never really got the blood on them. <laughs> you know, just like in the New Testament, all who come in through baptism, through an expressed faith, whether that faith is genuine or not, doesn't render the baptism real or not. Um, and someone commented on Facebook uh, when I was writing about baptisms and rebaptisms, as, as you know, Baptist denominations will do. You can't have a rebaptism. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But someone said, "Well, you know, one pastor kind of settled it for me." I don't know how they said it exactly, but it's like, how many times can you be circumcised? You know, it's like there's only one circumcision that can be done. Well, baptism is as real and as permanent. It it it, it may wash away like the water dries up, but the mark on you is as permanent as physical circumcision was. That's a good point. Um, it sticks, even though many who were physically circumcised were spiritually dead in their sins. And it was a judgment unto them, ultimately. <clears throat> um, and why, is this, oops, why does this all matter? Well, because it, it glorifies God. You know, when He is the one who saves from first to last. And it, and it gives you assurance. I had nothing to do this, with this salvation. I didn't initiate... The salvation. I didn't even initiate the faith to receive Christ. God did. And if he began a good work in me, he will finish it. He's the author and finisher of our faith. So, I mean, it, it gives you ultimate comfort. It, it, oh, I don't know if I'm elected or not. No, I absolutely know that I am. <laughs> like, I think it's completely on the other foot. If it's about free will, how can you ever be sure? How? How can you ever know with certainty that you've believed enough, that you've repented enough, 
Um, yeah, we all have to examine the fruit of our life, no matter what side of the aisle we fall on in these issues. But it's a greater comfort to know that he he, be, he began this in me. Like the love that I have is from him, and if there's even a drop of true love for him, it's only possible because I've been redeemed. Um, so. Do we want to wrap, start concluding here, if you guys got anything else? No, I can't think of anything to wrap up with here. Um, Tim, nothing? Yeah. Okay, so next time it'll be how Abraham um, was also justified by faith, not works. Uh, Believe God, he believed God's accounted to him for righteousness. <coughs> and of course, it'll talk about how. Oh, I don't see the verse here. Um, oh, verse 9 Does this blessedness, um, Christ, God imputing the righteousness of Christ to us, does this blessedness come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also, Jew and Gentile alike? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And that's going to be very important because not only for the Jew-Gentile distinction there and who gets what, but the fact that it says in verse 11 of chapter 4, And he received the sign of circumcision, which is a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which which he had while still uncircumcised. It's not a sign of faith, it's a sign of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. It's a sign of the righteousness of God, ultimately. It's not a sign of our faith at root. It's received in faith, but God is the righteous one and imputes his righteousness to us. And he's the father, Abraham, therefore, of all who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, given to them. And the father of circumcision are those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And obviously we can't go into the whole thing and do it all, but it, it, it shows the complete unity that has always been by faith alone and Christ alone. And it even talk about how the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. Um, and I was just going through this today that... You know, Christ opens the minds of his disciples and apostles to teach all things concerning him as found in all the Old Testament scriptures, and then they do that. And so, if you're not preaching Christ in the Old, Test- Old Testament, you're not preaching the Old Testament. Um, you say, well, and this is, sorry, <laughs> this is why you, you can't be like, well, there isn't an explicit, explicit command for XYZ, therefore it can't be done or, you know there, there's no explicit straight statement of the trinity we should just avoid that language or there's no explicit example of a baby being baptized therefore we don't do that or this or that about what's regular principle of worship whatever the case may be the connective tissue of the scripture running throughout um, requires a hermeneutic or a principle of interpreting scripture that follows patterns and themes and principles and runs the logic to its logical conclusion. Um, Because Paul does that. Christ does that. They tell us things in the New Testament that were never developed, per se, 
in the Old Testament, but but they're developing it now. And, you, and then people will say, well, we can believe that because they did it, but we can't do it. And that's a big difference between Baptists, Presbyterians, and others. It's like, well, they can do that because they were under inspiration, but we're not. Well, we have to be careful, but there's a principle that they're upholding there that all Christians should be following, a principle of seeing the threads of Scripture, the trajectory of Scripture and what is being taught, and following that all the way through. That's why studying the Scriptures requires wisdom and discernment. That's why Hebrews 5 and 6 talks about leaving the elementary principles of foundations of repentance towards God and faith in Christ Jesus and going on to deeper things. And it's said in the book of Hebrews where a lot of deeper stuff is laid out there, right in the context of Melchizedek and all kinds of other things. And you got the issue of, you know, um, was it Abraham in the loins of uh, Ad, um, who is it, in the loins tithing? Levi. Levi, yeah. Yeah, like, I don't know if I would have figured that out, <laughs> but it's teaching you how to interpret the scriptures is what it's teaching you how to do. First Corinthians 10, you know, that, that rock which followed them was Christ. So I think we could have figured that one out without it being explicitly said. But there's, there's hermeneutical principles and tools that are given in scripture itself that should guide us in how to understand all of scripture um, and so just because it isn't explicitly said doesn't mean it isn't implied and there's there's we, we understand that things are implied all the time and impl- an implication is still in a real sense it's still the word of God it's still a statement um, and that's why the Westminster Confession says Oh, you know the phrase I'm talking about, like what the scriptures teach and what is implied or what is, uh, I can't remember the exact phrasing of it now, but that implied part is scrubbed, I believe, from the London Baptist Confession, Um, but incorrectly so. (laughs) Anyway, that was kind of off the beaten path a little bit there, but um, we have to see the unity of scripture and follow the paths there. We'll talk about that more next time in Romans chapter 4.